Alaska, America's last frontier. A place teeming with wildlife and unspoiled natural beauty. A place rich with indigenous culture and lore. A place so big it can fit all of Texas, California, and Montana inside its borders and still have room to spare. A place whose location is so far-reaching that the international date line is warped in order to accommodate it. This place has been admired, studied, and traversed for decades. Its distance from the continental United States has given it a harsh, near-mythic image. It has been the subject of poetry, literature, film, and music, all of which praise its natural splendor and still manage to not do it enough justice. As I mentioned in the trailer, the main reason for spending so much time talking about Alaska is because John Luther Adams and Matthew Birdner have spent so much of their lives living there, and as a result, their music frequently evokes aspects of that state and its landscape. I'm going to dedicate separate pods on each composer, but before I do, I want to spend some time covering the history of how composers have used music to emulate the environment. Much of this is repurposed for my thesis, so if you'd rather read that, you can find it on my website at lukehelker.com. I'm Luke Helker, and you're listening to Ears to the Earth. I feel it is important to stress in the beginning here that while much of the music I talk about is entrenched in the Western musical canon, connections between sound and nature have been explored by humans since the age of ancient civilizations. Much of this has been documented by anthropologists and ethnomusicologists alike. Frankly, it would require an entirely separate podcast series in order to adequately cover the scope of such cultures and music. So for now, we'll keep our attention focused on the West. Musical depictions of nature in the Western canon begin to emerge around 1528 with French Renaissance composer Clément Jeannequin. His programmatic chanson, Le Chant des Oiseaux, uses the voice to recreate bird songs. Jeannequin is one of the first composers to write what we would call programmatic music or music that is designed to engender a non-musical narrative, but with music. It should be noted that in his treatise, Poetics, Aristotle writes how poetry, and by extension music, is mimetic, or imitative, in that it can represent objects or events in the world. Similar to Le Chant des Oiseaux, Jeannequin used music to reflect the sounds of the hunt, and even recreate battle sequences. The proliferation of music intended to evoke nature, or a particular environment, continues throughout history, including works like Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony, Debussy's La Mer,
and Messian's Cheve d'Azuezu. All of this is taking place as Western compositional techniques and aesthetics become codified. And I think it's important to keep this in the back of our head because as we head into the 20th century, new ideas begin to emerge that reconsider what sounds were worthy of such appreciation. Or in other words, what sounds were worthy of being immortalized in music. For instance, I believe these challenges of the status quo begin in earnest when Arnold Schoenberg asserts that all 12 tones should be treated equally rather than grouping them into the separate tonal centers or scales that we so often do today. His emancipation of dissonance began to afford composers a new degree of flexibility when it came to the craft of composition. However, this idea of pan-tonality quickly merged with his 12-tone system and created a more mathematical and emotionless approach to composition. Next, we have Italian futurist Luigi Russolo, who expanded on Schoenberg's idea of embracing dissonant sonorities. To him, bird songs were not the only naturally occurring sounds worthy of musical inclusion. In his manifesto, The Art of Noises, Russolo argues that the sounds associated with urbanization and industrialization should also be recognized as sounds worthy of embracement in the Western Symphony Orchestra. By the early 1910s and 20s, the world had witnessed the dramatic effects of modernization as a result of the Industrial Revolution, in which factories sprouted up like weeds. The Industrial Revolution had a profound effect on the First World War, which endorsed more sophisticated weaponry and horrific fighting conditions. For Russolo, Italy's new sonic palette could be manipulated for his own purposes. As a result, he cataloged all of the different sounds he heard and invented a few of his own noise machines for his own compositions. He divided the noises into six categories based on the specific production of sound. Explosions and roars. Hisses and whistles. Whispers and bustling. Screeches and friction. Percussive impacts. and the voices of humans and animals. Now, here's where I need to shamelessly allow my background as a percussionist to enter the discussion. Because around this time, perspectives on percussion instruments are also beginning to shift. Percussion had long been used in symphonic music to reinforce time, harmonic cadences, and occasionally provide sound effects particularly with non-pitched percussion instruments. However, now composers were shifting towards treating percussion instruments on an equal plane with the other orchestral instruments, and soon enough people began to compose music specifically for percussion, the most famous of which being Edgar Varese's ionization.
Perez continued to cement his legacy as one of the most forward-thinking composers of the 20th century with pieces like Emerics and Désert, which embraced new sounds into the orchestra, including sirens and electronics. Varese had a keen understanding of music's ability to convey place in both geographical and spiritual terms. Reflecting on Emmerich's, he noted that it is not, quote, purely geographic, but as symbolic of discoveries, new worlds on earth, in the sky, or in the minds of men, end quote. Varese had similar sentiments regarding his piece Désert, in which he used the image of a desert to conjure feelings of solitude and detachment. He suggests that it doesn't have to be made entirely of sand. It could be a desert of sea, snow, outer space, even a deserted city street could be a desert. He even likens a desert to, quote, the remote inner space of the mind no telescope can reach, a world of mystery and essential loneliness, end quote. And on some level, we all inhabit a desert at some point in our lives, even if it's not in the most literal definition. And now we're going to move on to John Cage, who taught us that all sounds could be treated equally, including silence. In fact, he remains notorious for the one piece in which the performer doesn't play a single note. In his piece, 4 minutes and 33 seconds, the performer approaches a piano and prepares to perform on it. But for 4 minutes and 33 seconds, they do not play a single note. While the piano may not produce any sound, the performance is filled with the ambient sounds of the audience or of the hall. The conceit for such a radical piece was inspired by his experience in an anechoic chamber, which is a room designed to produce absolute silence by not having any resonating chambers. However, when Cage was in one of these rooms, he realized that true silence actually does not exist because he could still hear the circulation of his blood and the electrical currents running through his nervous system. 433 is a very controversial piece and often regarded as a prank, but I do believe that Cage tapped into something rather profound by forcing us to confront the nuances of both sound and silence as factors when experiencing music. And while Cage may have, to some extent, retuned our ears to the world at large, perhaps the most significant contribution to the idea that an environment can serve an artistic purpose came when R. Murray Schaefer wrote The New Soundscape, in which he compared the world to a symphony, equating aircraft, guitars, and machinery as possible motifs. This idea may not appear as radical as 433, 
But where Cage remained rooted in compositional and philosophical ideas about sound and space, Schaefer turned ambience and environmental sounds into an academic study. In addition to the new soundscape, Schaefer also published The Book of Noise, both of which acknowledged that noise was as natural a sound as any other, but ultimately wanted to raise awareness towards careless noise pollution, calling the modern city a, quote, sonic battleground in which man is losing, end quote. Schaefer's research would form the basis of acoustic ecology, a discipline that investigates how soundscapes can be used to articulate relationships between humans and their surroundings. He soon established the World Soundscape Project and began working with Barry Truex and Hildegard Westerkamp to expand on their mission to study habitats through sound in an effort to learn more about how humans can interact with their environment. This involved embarking on cross-country recording tours of both Canada and Europe, yielding several publications, including The Vancouver Soundscape, European Sound Diary, and Five Village Soundscapes, as well as a bevy of accompanying recordings, many of which were published on CDs. The recordings are these beautiful kaleidoscopic collages of sound from churches, harbors, trains, and wildlife, all of which are very familiar, yet distinctly belonging to their particular regions. Their collective research culminated in Schaefer's book, The Tuning of the World, and Truix's Handbook for Acoustic Ecology, both of which are still used as reference works for students today. Over the past century, Russolo, Verez, and Cage have prompted various debates on the merits of noise, silence, and their respective representation in the Western canon. Schaefer and the members of the World Soundscape Project succeeded in not only combining aspects of each discussion into a study from which other niche disciplines can exist, but in turn laid the framework for how artists, scientists, and musicians can see, hear, and record the world around them. Many of the processes used by the World Soundscape Project are still in practice today, including field recording, sonification, and site-specific methods, all of which have become art forms in their own right and will be covered in greater detail in later podcasts. This more or less brings us up to date, and again, in later pods I will fill in some of the gaps here, but I want to briefly talk about the philosophy of place itself before we go. The majority of the literature and philosophy that has guided my research has been conducted and theorized throughout the 20th century. Much of it stems from differing interpretations of how one defines place and considers its physical, mental, and emotional impact. For example, Daniel Grimley and Denise von Glan examine the concept of space by focusing on the spiritual and emotional aspects of physical spaces. In his book, Delius and the Sounds of Place, Grimley notes that, quote, Place refers not only to a specific geographical site or set of coordinates, but also to matters of identity, presence, and behavior. To know one's place, for example, implies hierarchical notions of social class and distinction, and to call a place home is to evoke ideas of ownership and belonging." End quote. Von Glan echoes the sentiment of place shaping one's identity in her book, The Sounds of Place, Music and the American Cultural Landscape. In her book, she examines the reciprocal nature in which place can inspire art 
and art in turn can evoke place. She achieves this by focusing on American composers, including, but not limited to, Ives, Copeland, and Ellington. The aforementioned composers use their music to evoke a particular surrounding. The naturally recurring bird songs and weather patterns that inspired the music of Messiaen and Beethoven are unique to their particular time and place, but could also occur in some form or fashion anywhere in the world at any given point in time. As Rusolo, Varese, and the World Soundscape Project push the boundaries of what is sonically acceptable, we can also hear distinct sounds meant to evoke what they heard in Italy, America, and Canada, respectively, which corresponds with Grimley's definition of place. As we'll see in future episodes, Grimley's definition of place as a sense of belonging or ownership is evident in both Adams and Bertner and their relationship to Alaska. Both have called Alaska home for a number of years, and both have since composed a wealth of music inspired by and evoking aspects of Alaska. It is also consistent with the reciprocal relationship outlined by von Glan. In the introduction of her book, von Glan includes several questions that she uses as a framework for understanding how place affects composers and why such pieces are noteworthy. What was the purpose of the memorialization of this place? How did the composer relate to the place? What compositional techniques did the composer employ to capture the place? And what vision of the place, and hence of the United States, do each of these pieces convey? Such questions were applied to the music of Adams and Bertner throughout my thesis, and will continue to be applied to all of the composers and artists that I continue to interview or examine. My thesis was intended to understand what Adams and Bertner were trying to evoke with their music. In my thesis, I analyzed selected works from each of their catalogs, spanning several decades of their careers. They were pieces that demonstrated how the composer attempts to recreate an element of Alaska's landscape, or more generally, any aspect of nature. Fortunately for us, this podcast allows me to add much more to the discussion. To learn more, stay tuned for next week's podcast. Till then, keep your ears to the earth. Oh,